Hello race fans and welcome to the Peter Mackay Motorsport Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode. I really do appreciate it. Today we're going to do a big recap on all the all the happenings in the Moto Grand Prix World Championship, the premier class of motorcycle racing anywhere in the world. And of course, with a much delayed start to the season and a much a very much a condensed schedule, well, it has really shaken up the sport in many more ways than I think anyone expected. And we've had five rounds of the season so far with uh, a number still to go, mainly a European season at this stage. We might get abroad once or twice later in the year, but it's looking like it will likely be just a European season. So very old-fashioned in in, in that sense. But uh, MotoGP is never short of uh, excitement from race to race. But we've seen very much domination from the Spaniard, Mark Marquez, who came into the championship as a rookie, as a 20-year-old rookie in 2013. And since then, he has won every single championship he has entered apart from one in 2015. So he's a six-time MotoGP world champion and uh, just a, an incredible rider. So many race wins, so many pole positions. And... Uh, Really, coming into this season, uh, it looked like it was going to be maybe a little bit more of the same, certainly judging by Mark's pace. You know, he'd uh, gone away in the winter and got um, some uh, key surgery on his shoulder um, over the winter time, and uh, with the delayed start to the season, that allowed him to be completely recovered uh, and, uh, and so on. However, what has transpired in the Moto Grand Prix World Championship, well, has well, could be comp- nobody could have predicted what has happened in the opening round at Jerez uh, in the south of Spain. Uh, Mark was running relatively strongly, but uh, maybe just a fraction behind on pace to the Frenchman Fabio Quartararo, who we'll talk about in just a moment. But uh, Mar- Marquez is really being pushed, um, and uh, we saw that early on in the in the race where uh, he had an enormous moment. Uh, at uh, turn number four, the very quick left-hander and went went off the circuit, but actually somehow managed to save the accident and actually managed to sort of motocross his way through the uh, through the gravel and re and go back onto the circuit and recover. But uh, um, it really a, a very much a, an example of one thing: how much Mark was being pushed by uh, Fabio Quartararo as he was last season. But in this particular year, really Fabio Quartararo are coming out of the winter looking very, very strong indeed. But also what we saw for Marquez there was is that the, just the incredible ability that he has to save accidents that others would end up on the floor. He was saving it on his elbow, his knee, his shoulder, everything to keep, his, keep himself on the motorcycle. However, throughout that race, he charged back through the field from the back of the pack back up to the the top five, but with just a few laps to go in the race, at the very same corner, clearly pushing on to try and get onto the podium, Marquez had an enormous high side accident and injured himself really quite badly and uh, ended up breaking uh, breaking his elbow. Now, of course, with this condensed season in MotoGP, we've had a lot more back-to-back 
races than normal. Sometimes on the same circuit, we had two races back-to-back at Jerez and two races back-to-back in Austria um, in just later on in the season. But so for Mark, having a, a such a horrific injury and then having to go and get surgery up in Barcelona immediately, uh, it looked almost impossible um, for him to make it back onto the grid the following week. Usually with a, a fracture to the elbow, that will put you out for months, let alone weeks. Um, but this is Mark Marquez we're talking about, and he had a successful operation. A plate was put on his elbow, uh, and he made his way back to the um the Jerez circuit and to the amazement of of the paddock and this is a paddock that have seen him pull off miracle after miracle uh since his uh since his entry into the MotoGP World Championship back in 2013 but uh, he came back and decided to sit out Friday practice just to get that little bit of extra recovery he went out on Saturday and he was not the not the same Mark Marquez at all and in fact went out in qualifying and very promptly pulled back in and said enough was enough. And we have not seen him back since. So we've had four races now since that opening round at Jerez um, and no points on the board at all for our defending champion, Mar- Marquez. Now, I think a lot, although many were su- incredibly surprised to see him attempt to ride just a week after incurring that horrific injury at Jerez, we did expect to see him back by now, but it would appear that this uh, injury is a lot worse than than once thought. And there's slightly strange stories coming out of the Honda camp and the Marquez camp saying that he'd had some sort of incident opening a window, which has disrupted the injury. It's a strange one. Um, I I suspect it might be more to do with training, maybe, but we don't know. But uh, the result is, is that we've had no... Mark Marquez and what we've learned in this particular season in MotoGP is just how actually if anything although it looks like he's going to really struggle to get back in time to score any points let alone challenge for the world championship but he um, I think if anything this year will actually solidify Mark's legacy even more because you know what is being proven is that just how unpredictable MotoGP is uh, without him there. Um, it just shows you just how much of a difference he makes. And if you look at the, uh, you know, his his Repsol Honda team that he's left behind, they have scored 15 points collectively in five races. And all of those 15 points have been scored by his brother, Alex Marquez, who uh, is his teammate, of course, this year. Stefan Bradl, the Honda um, Repsol Honda's test rider, has not scored any points on that motorcycle yet in his stand-in races. So, what it proves to me is just how much he is extracting out of that Honda motorcycle and how unfriendly that Honda motorcycle is to, to other riders. And I was thinking just last night, funnily enough, the similarities between Mark Marquez's time with Honda and Casey Stoner's time with Ducati when they seem to be the only two guys on the planet able to extract such pace from these such unfriendly motorcycles and almost as if they're almost a bit more comfortable with a motorcycle that's so on the edge which um, almost intimidates other 
uh, riders to be able to push and have the confidence to push. And I don't necessarily believe that Marc Marquez would go any faster on a more friendly Yamaha or a Ducati or Suzuki even. Um, I think the result would be more or less the same, which proves the point that, that he really is um, one of the, the, the true all-time greats uh, in, in his own way. But it's still unclear when we're going to see Marc Marquez back in the championship, but we wish him well and hopefully we'll see him back uh, in the paddock before too long. So, with Marc Marquez out of the picture, it has really opened up a whole new complexion to the championship. Fabio Quartararo, even last year in his debut season in MotoGP aboard the uh, Petronas SRT Yamaha, a brand new team as well, don't forget, with its first season in MotoGP last year. On a consistent basis, Fabio was able to challenge Marc Marquez in multiple races and m many times going down to the very last lap. Unfortunately, Fabio just wasn't quite able to get that win last year, but he's come out the blocks, well, he came out the blocks in the MotoGP 2020 like a rocket and won both opening races at Jerez. Uh, and to be honest, I don't know if he would have been challenged by Marc Marquez, certainly from what we saw in the first Jerez race when Marquez was riding. To be honest, Fabio Quartararo had the pace, almost Jorge Lorenzo-esque in his consistency and dominance uh, of pace. But since then, Fabio Quartararo has not been on the podium. In fact, we've had three races now where he's finished 7th at Bruno and 8th and 13th in the two races in Austria. But even with three poor finishes by his standards, he still leads the championship on 70 points. And that, in a nutshell, tells you all you need to know about the unpredictability and the bizarre circumstances of MotoGP 2020. For fans, for us looking from the outside in, it's an absolute treat. We just don't know who's gonna win from weekend to weekend. We've got a new manufacturer in KTM, taking race victories now as well. Of course, they're not new to the series. They've been in for a few years now, but this is the first year where they've claimed race victories. And in fact, KTM uh, have scored uh, two victories already. There's two for two for KTM, two for Yamaha, and one for Ducati. So Honda and Suzuki winless uh, so far in the MotoGP World Championship. But uh, Fabio Quartararo, at the trajectory he's going with um, Andrea De Vizioso closing him in, he really needs to, to get back on the pace. I would suspect when we go to Mizano for the next round in a, a week or so's time, I suspect to see the Yamahas back on form. It's historically been a very good circuit for the Yamaha motorcycle with many victories there over the last few years. But if anything has been proven in this particular season is that the form book is well and truly in the bin. <laughs> you know, we've seen, you know, for for example, we've seen Andrea De Vizioso on the Ducati get a podium at Jerez, normally the worst circuit on the calendar for Ducati, then at Bruno in the Czech Republic, which is historically the best circuit in the calendar for Ducati, he came 11th, um, and it was a disastrous day for Ducati all round. So everything has been turned upon its head in MotoGP 2020. Speaking of Andrea De Vizioso, of course, uh, since coming to Ducati all the way back in 2013, Andrea De Vizioso has slowly chipped away and built a motorcycle to be able to win. And we saw 
Uh, we saw in 2017 and 2018 Andre Davizioso being very much a regular challenger for uh, the championship and winning a lot of races and being the guy really to take the fight to Mark Marquez on a regular basis. However, in the last year or two, the relationship between Andrea Davizioso and his Ducati team has slowly but surely uh, deteriorated. We saw when Jorge Lorenzo was signed for Ducati, Andrea Davizioso was apparently made to take a pay cut in order to pay for Jorge's um, ex extraordinary salary requirement. And during that time, Andrea Davizioso, of course, outperformed. Uh, the the Mallorcan rider as well. So, you know, this has been a long time coming and this sort of mm, snubbing of uh, of Andrea De Vizioso has been, has been getting worse and worse over time. And this has really come to a head in the, uh, over the course of this year because Andrea De Vizioso and Ducati have st reportedly struggled to come to an agreement of a package for next year and clearly Andrea De Vizioso not happy with the financial package that's put in front of him given the success that he's brought to the Italian factory and quite honestly I think his impact on the manufacturer is well I mean in terms of success it's not far off with the exception of a world championship it's not far off the success that uh, that Casey Stoner brought to the factory and also I think the one thing you could say about Andrea De Vizioso is that he has been he has been critical to developing a motorcycle that more than one person can ride. We've seen Jack Miller have a lot of success on the bike. We've seen Johan Zarco step onto it this year and done and and do very 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 well. Uh, indeed, we did see Jorge Lorenzo win some races. The last races he won in his career were on a Ducati. Don't forget. So there have been many riders that have been able to 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 win on the bike. Daniela Petrucci also has won on the bike at Mugello last year. So it's a pity then that uh, in uh, after a couple of rounds after that disastrous weekend at Bruno, Andrea De Vizioso arrived to, uh, to uh, into to the Red Bull ring in Austria and announced, um, shocked the whole paddock on Saturday qualifying day, made his announcement that he said, I will not be riding for Ducati next year. Now normally these sort of... Um, Normally these sort of announcements come out if a rider already has another deal uh, or uh, it, normally it's the team that say we're, you know, we're, we no longer require their services. But Andrea De Vizioso said, I'm leaving Ducati and I can confirm I do not have anything agreed for next season yet. I'm sure there are discussions going on, I'm sure, um, for lots of things, but uh, he's decided that uh, he decided that he did not want to to, to ride for Ducati the next year, he felt the relationship had deteriorated uh, and also that the contract negotiations were distracting him from his job, which is going out, riding the motorcycle and winning races. And what did he do the very next day? <laughs> he won the race, of course. He went out and won the Austrian Grand Prix uh, at the Red Bull Ring. Historically a very popular circuit. It's the Ducati have never been beaten there. Uh, up until uh, the following weekend when uh, KTM got their first victory with Miguel Oliveira uh, at the circuit. But uh, it, uh, it was quite, the irony was not lost on the paddock and uh, it's a kind of typical um, typical Andrea de Vizioso. He's a bit of an enigma from time to time, but uh, it's going to be really fascinating to see how the rest of the season goes. Andrea de Vizioso probably has the 
best opportunity of his career to be MotoGP world champion. And I think if he achieves that, then, well, that gives him the option. I think that gives him the option of of continuing with it on a decent bike. Where that is, is very unclear at this stage. It's hard to see where that bike might be, but it's amazing how contracts... Uh, um, uh, lose the relevance in situations like that. But also, as he could also do a bit of a Nico Rosberg from Formula One. He could win the title and then just park up. And, um, you know, given he's had a very long and successful career, that might well be what he does. But it'll be fascinating to see how uh, that goes. How have the Yamaha boys been getting on? Well, certainly for Fabio Quartararo on the Patronus Yamaha, of course, the satellite team but a factory specification motorcycle. So the very latest 2020 specification of Yamaha M1 motorcycle uh, is given to Fabio Cortoraro, um, but is run by the um, satellite team, the secondary team, if you like. Uh, next season, uh, Fabio Cortoraro will uh, be promoted to the factory team, to the monster team, the the, the dark blue bike, uh, uh, the official team, and he will. It is reported that he will swap seats with uh, Valentino Rossi, and Valentino Rossi will continue his career uh, beyond the age of forty-two. You can amazing to think he'll be forty-two in February next year, and it's uh, apparently ninety-nine percent sealed that he will go to the Petronas Yamaha team next year and uh, continue his career on again on the latest specification of Yamaha motorcycle. Now for Valentino, obviously Valentino Rossi is the biggest name in the sport. He's a nine-time world champion, seven of those in the premier class. His stats are well known but you just have to go to any MotoGP race or watch any MotoGP race on the television and every single grandstand you just see a sea of yellow. And that is fans wearing uh, Valentino Rossi merchandise. And if you go around the perimeter of any circuit, at any MotoGP weekend you like, you will see 10 times, maybe 15 times the number of Valentino Rossi merchandise stalls to all the other riders combined. That is the, the commercial value that Valentino Rossi has as a name, uh, as, as a, a figurehead for the sport. Now... Malaysia, the the country where the SRT, which stands for Sepang Racing Team, of course Sepang is the circuit in Malaysia where MotoGP goes, and Petronas, of course, is the Malaysian state oil company. Now, in Malaysia, you along with Indonesia, they are the two most fanatical countries for MotoGP. In Indonesia, if you go to a sports bar in Indonesia, it will you will any any day of the week. Any sports bar, there will be MotoGP on the television there. That is the popularity that it commands. If you go to Malaysia in uh, the capital city of Kuala Lumpur, downtown, well, the uh, the traffic there is a sight to behold, to be honest. It is one of the most extraordinary things I've ever seen. It's kind of like 10 Moto3 races going on on one track, if you could imagine what that's like. And all the the locals riding little scooters, they call them underbones, and they're kind of sp kind of sporty looking scooters that all run. They all have the sticker sets of the MotoGP team, so you'll see Repsol, Honda scooters, um, Yamaha scooters, and so on. And as you can imagine, there is a lot of Valentino Rossi replica helmets being worn as well. So for the sport, 
you know, we know that in the post-Valentino Rossi era, when he does eventually stop riding, the sport will have to change and have to evolve and have to think of how to, to carry on without Valentino Rossi, and I'm sure they will do so. But uh, Valentino Rossi's parting gift to the sport, do not underestimate the commercial opportunity that Dorna has and that Yamaha have, and also Valentino himself, for him to be riding in a Malaysian team uh, is is a match made in heaven. And uh, Dorna, Yamaha, Petronas, they need to do everything that they need to get that to, to happen. As uh, Valentino's made it very clear, he wants to, to continue riding. And quite honestly, it would be a great pity and a huge opportunity lost if that weren't to happen. But how has the 41-year-old Valentino Rossi got on this season? Well, he had his first podium finish for quite some time in uh, in Jerez, uh, in the second race at Jerez. Now, interestingly, Jerez has not been a good circuit for Yamaha in the last couple of years, particularly in high temperatures. And of course, normally the Jerez MotoGP race runs in May. This year, of course, ran in July. The track temperatures were extraordinarily high, and Valentino Rossi actually said that that was the hottest MotoGP race he'd ever competed in. So there's clearly nothing wrong with his fitness to ride a 300 horsepower motorcycle for 40 minutes flat out in over 40 degrees heat. Uh, I don't think you can question uh, Valentino Rossi's fitness level, that's for sure. Uh, neither his motivation, because I think in MotoGP the, the field has never been deeper. And there was a couple of, one particular journalist who I won't even give the, the, the time of day to mention their name, but they'd been in the paddock for over 40 years. So they've got an experienced journalist. And they said that the championship would not have any worth with Mark Marquez not there. And would also say that the riders with Mark, Mark Marquez there, the other riders might as well tear up their licenses. To me, that's incredibly offensive and incredibly incredibly misinformed and, and quite unexcusable for a journalist who's been in the sport for that length of time. And um, for anyone who's got half a brain, you'll see that the, the we have the closest MotoGP field we've ever seen. And even the slightest mistake, you will be severely punished. You know, we've got Fabio Quartararo goes from winning two races at the start of the season, and then all of a sudden he's 7th, 8th and 13th. That's because there are so many fast riders, and if you're just that little bit off the pace, you are nowhere. And that was never the case before. And that's why, for me, I completely disagree with that comment that this this championship somewhat, somehow has less relevance with the absence of Mark Marquez while he recovers from injury. To be honest, that's complete tosh, and I, I couldn't be more... <laughs> couldn't be more firm uh, about that opinion, to be honest, without being rude. Um, but Valentino Rossi is a you know good good season. Unfortunately, had one he had a mechanical breakdown uh, in the opening race at Jerez. Um, and Yamaha have had a couple. They had two at Jerez, one with Valentino Rossi and one with uh, Franco Morbidelli, which does give a lot of concern about the engine that Yamaha are using and its uh, longevity over the season. It's something we're very, no, very, very... Um, it's very unusual to see that in, for any manufacturer in MotoGP, let alone for the experienced Japanese manufacturers. We have seen manufacturers like Aprilia blow up engines quite regularly, but um, for um, Yamaha and for Honda, it's 
almost un- non- unheard of. So to see two blow up in two weeks, a little bit of a concern for the uh, for the Japanese factory Yamaha. The other Yamaha, the factory Yamaha of Maverick Vinales, well, a bit like Fabio Quartararo, made a brilliant start to the season. Two second place finishes behind Fabio Quartararo and looked very much uh, in the game to be competing for the World Championship. However, at the very next round at Bruno, finished 14th and then the next round in Austria finished 10th. Uh, and then... And the final, the, the 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 most recent round, the second race uh, in Austria, had uh, a catastrophic brake failure heading into turn one, which I can imagine was a um, pretty terrifying experience. And uh, Maverick had to jump off the bike at well over a hundred miles an hour, which was really not um, really not a pleasant thing to to watch. Let alone, I can't imagine what it was like for him on the bike. And also, that particular incident came at a time when. The safety of MotoGP has been called into question. And of course, it's, I always know as, as a MotoGP fan, MotoGP is a, it's a niche sport. You know, as much as, we, as much as we'd like to think otherwise, you know, when people think racing, they, they say, oh, do you, you like Formula One? And that's kind of, that's what racing is to a lot of people, a little bit like how the, the you know, Premier League uh, in England is what football is to a lot of people. It's just, it's just normal to what gets the most airtime. But MotoGP in general is a niche sport, but you know something major has happened when you're speaking to people over the next few weeks and they mention that they saw something in the newspaper or on the television. It means that it's something so significant that it's made the mainstream news. So uh, the last one that I remember was uh, when um, uh, when uh, Romano Fanati tweaked the front brake lever on purpose of um, of one of his rivals. That made the, that made the main news. Also, Sepang 2015 when Rossi and Mark Marquez clashed. That made the main news. But those are the only two I can remember. But the last one, of course, the. Um, the Austrian Grand Prix a couple of weeks ago, we saw one of the most horrible accidents I think I've ever seen. By some form of miracle, the injuries were were, were light, thankfully, in, in comparison. But uh, the the well, the glaring, glaringly obvious problem uh, to me seemed seemed clear for, for all to see, but. As has unfortunately been the case in in motor racing over the last well, pretty much ever really, it, it seems that motor racing we have to wait for a tragedy to happen for any kind of um, improvement to be made. And of course, this all came to a head uh, in the Austrian Grand Prix, the first race of the double header at the Red Bull Ring. And ever since we went to the the Red Bull Ring in twenty sixteen. Uh, with MotoGP, the riders have been incredibly vocal about the safety or lack of uh, safety at the track. The track is very much a track uh, centred around Formula One, around car racing, and in my opinion is unsuitable to uh, modern day MotoGP racing. One of the issues is, is that you have two very, very slow corners from very, very high braking uh, braking areas. So we have that at Mugello, for example. At Mugello, you know, we see the riders come over the top of the hill at over 210 miles an hour and brake all the way down to second, sometimes bottom gear, and make the corner to the right. However, the the profile of that corner is is shallow enough that the, there isn't so much of a danger 
of riders coming through and having a bit of a T-bone accident. In uh, at the Red Bull ring, that's not the case, particularly at, uh, at Turn 8, where this particular incident happened, where the riders come through a kind of snaking back straight and you know they're they're well over 200 miles an hour at this point now braking from 200 miles an hour is a regular occurrence we see that every weekend in moto gp so the riders are well used to it they can do it the bikes can do it they have the capability to do it that's not the problem uh the problem is is when you're going from such high speed all the way down to almost walking pace in comparison. You're going right down to first gear and almost almost having to dip the clutch to keep the bike going, the corner's so, so slow. But the problem is, is also the tightness of the corner uh, turning round to the right. And basically you've got the because you've got that turning right and you've got the, the basically the bike then becoming broadside to the approach to the corner. So what we saw was, was two riders battling for position, Franco Morbidelli and uh, uh, Johan Zarco and Johan Zarco effectively pulled in front of Franco Morbidelli uh, in just at the point of the braking and that just that ever so slight moment caught the draft of uh, Franco's bike and they, they collided um, a pretty stupid move from Johan Zarco to be fair uh, and one that was was punished um, quite severely he had to start from pit lane the 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 next uh, the next race but the resulting, uh, the resulting accident from that collision was one of the most horrifying things I've ever seen in, in, in motor racing. Both riders clattered off into uh, the, the gravel trap, but it was more the, what, the, where their motorcycles ended up, which was the issue. They're, both of their motorcycles clattered through the, the gravel and with nothing to actually catch them, the motorcycles then headed back into the path of the riders turning around this very tight right-hand bend. And the two riders turning around this right-hand bend at this unfortunate moment were Maverick Vinales and, as I said, the most famous motorcycle racer of all time, Valentino Rossi. And we had two motorcycles fly through the air in bits and miss both of these riders by mere millimetres. And we were mere millimetres away from having not one, not two, maybe even three tragedies uh, in one race. And the red flag, the red flag was thrown out, and uh, to stop the race, I mean, the wreckage. It was like a, a, it was like an, an aircraft had crashed on the circuit. There was that much debris, so they had to red flag the race and brought the riders back in. And you know, these are guys that race three hundred horsepower motorcycles for a living. They don't scare easily. They they are. If you think, if you again, you'll hear journalists refer to some riders as wimps or pathetic, or you know, you know, they 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 should man up or things like that. And we and the crazy thing is, this is twenty twenty, and we're still getting that kind of language being used. Um, but quite honestly, this is often written by people that have never even been on a motorcycle, let alone raced one. And when you see someone like Valentino Rossi, who's seen what he's seen across his career. And he comes into his pit box, takes his helmet off, and he was white as a sheet. He looked like he'd seen a ghost. And at that point, in my opinion, we'd had eight laps. Grand Prix should have been called the result at that point. What that accident showed was that there is a very clear um, issue with that particular corner. And a graphic demonstration was shown of just how... Uh, 
unfit for purpose that particular circuit and that particular corner is for motorcycle Grand Prix racing. However, what happened? They repaired the barrier, they cleared the debris and they sent the riders back out again with no ad adaptation. So there was absolutely no reason why that incident could have happened again. And thank God it didn't. But the problem is, if one of those riders had been injured or worse, then uh, the, the, that the, they wouldn't have gone back out onto the circuit. Now, to me, I don't see why uh, a near miss by a couple of millimetres merits you to go back out onto the track, given you, you, that is, it was so clear that that corner is so unsuitable for the racing that that should have been called, as a result, eight laps, park the bikes up. And remember, they were coming back for another race seven days later. Now, during the week, in between those two races, Dorna and the, the circuit owner, Red Bull, remember that, key fact, the Red Bull, who are one of, probably one of, if not the biggest con financial contributors to MotoGP as a whole, in terms of event sponsorships, team sponsorships, rider sponsorships, uh, circuits, but everything. They own the circuit for as, as well, for a start. Now, I'm not putting this at Red Bull's uh, door, but I'm sure that played a factor. And in between the two races, um, uh, improvements were made to uh, the barriers. There was more rectocell, uh, more um, air fences moved around to try and stop this from happening again. But quite honestly, you know, it's it, it it's not it's not enough. You know, we we uh, I don't think we can sit by and accept that level of risk. Motorcycle racing is very risky and very dangerous, and the riders know that. The team owners know that and fans know that. But the I don't think you can put in unnecessary risk. And that's what we're seeing right now with, with the Red Bull ring. And uh, I personally think it would be quite irresponsible to go back to the circuit next year. But I could, I'd be able to bet that we do. We've seen this so many times in, in, in motor racing. I always use the example of the hands device. So if you ever see a driver come out of a Formula One car or out of a, or any racing car nowadays, and they have a kind of, a kind of carbon fibre brace over their shoulders with a little attachment that clips onto their helmet. That's called a hands device, which stands for head and neck support. And um, there's a, a gentleman called Dr. Hubbard who created this uh, created this technology because he realised that a number of racing drivers were dying in accidents by something called basilar skull fractures, which is something where the the brain basically impacts with the the skull and 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 uh, is is damaged. So he wanted to create a way to try and stop that from happening in a, in an impact. And he came up with the head and neck restraint. And the idea is is that your body and your head and neck are all kept in one kind of constant movement. So if you jack forward in an impact, there's not that there's there's not that difference uh, uh, in 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 speed. So you you should hopefully um, make make it out of the the accident without um, in, incurring that injury. Now that particular um that particular technology was pioneered it was proven all the way through the late late 80s and early 1990s and to give them their credit many manufacturers like general motors and mercedes put in a lot of funding quietly in the mid 1990s to get that uh, to put in further research into the device however and as more drivers voluntarily um incorporated the device no series would actually uh, with the exception of Formula One, would actually um, mandate the technology.
so that they, they would not insist the drivers to use it. They left it up to the drivers to decide. Um, then we saw back in 1999 a horrendous year uh, in the IndyCar series when uh, five drivers lost their lives and they all lost their lives to the same injury, basilar skull fracture. And one of those, it took, it took unfortunately, a, a, ver a very much missed driver, a guy called Greg Moore, uh, who was known as one of the greatest talents of the time. And when Greg died, that was it needed a name like his to be able for the IndyCar series to go, okay, we're going we're to mandate this technology. NASCAR, even after this, NASCAR, the other oval racing series in America, would, again, still refused to mandate the technology. And unfortunately, it took the biggest name ever in NASCAR, Dale Earnhardt Sr., to die in the last lap of their most famous race, the Daytona 500, in the year 2000. Uh, sorry, in the year 2001, my apologies. Um, to for that, And then the, that very next day, the technology was mandated in NASCAR, and the that particular week, they sold more hands devices than ever before. So, to me, I have this. I have this really. I've been a race fan my entire life, and uh, you know, now making it my career. And I love. I love racing of all forms. I, I I love the freedom of it. I love the competition. I love. I, the list is endless. However you can always improve anything you can improve and i think the the attitude towards safety has been fantastic in general uh, you look at the improvements that have been made to safety in motorcycle racing and in uh, in car racing as well as you cannot uh, i don't want it to make sound like the safety is not a concern it absolutely is however i think we need to get out of this pattern of waiting for something tragic to happen before action is actually taken you shouldn't have to do that and what we saw at the austrian grand prix this year in 2020 was as close as you're ever i mean millimeters away from a complete tragedy losing any rider is a tragedy um it's and losing some uh, uh we nearly lost um a nine-time world champion um valentino rossi and you know that would have been a tragedy as well and the fact that w w that we were millimeters away from that happening does not excuse that incident in my in my view um i think it's something that needs to be acted upon as if the worst had happened and i think that's the that's the key difference that we need to change uh, in in MotoGP. however let's go back to some happier topics uh We've seen three brand new winners this year in the MotoGP World Championship. Of course, we saw Fabio Quartararo win his two, uh, win the first two races of the season. His first two uh, wins in MotoGP. Now, those weren't necessarily a surprise. We've kind of been waiting on that since Fabio Quartararo had such a great debut season last year. However, the other two were a bit more of a, sub a surprise. Um, both we've we've seen a lot of firsts. It's been the first victories for the KTM factory, of course, Austrian factory, um, who have committed to MotoGP for a couple of years now and have developed uh, a wonderful motorcycle that has finally come to uh, come to fruition this year and has started to, to get wins. Most notably, Brad Binder, in just his third ever race in the MotoGP World Championship, he won. And he won convincingly. 
at the uh, Czech Republic at Brno. Uh, an extraordinary performance, absolutely extraordinary performance uh, from the South African. And remember, we, we haven't seen someone win that early in their MotoGP career since Mark Marquez won uh, at Austin uh, at the uh, Circuit of the Americas uh, at the, the American Grand Prix uh, back in 2013. So uh, if, you, if you look at that kind of trajectory, Brad Binder is, uh, is is certainly one to watch for the future. Then in the in the uh, the most recent round uh, in Austria, we saw Miguel Oliveira win in an unbelievable battle between Jack Miller and Paul Spargaro uh, in the final corner, uh, winning uh, not only his first race in MotoGP but also, could you believe the first ever race win for the Tech Three team? Now, those long-standing fans of MotoGP will know the Tech Three name well, and of course, Tech Three for so many years were associated with Yamaha. They were the official satellite team for Yamaha, the secondary team for for Yamaha for many many years, and had many many podiums with riders like Bradley Smith, and in particular, Cal Crutchlow, and most recently, Johan Zarco. However, they never quite got that outright win that they that they wanted. And Hervé Poncheral, the team owner and team principal, you know, remember this is a private team. It's uh, you know he's got to go out and get the finance every year to fund this race team. He'd had forty years in the MotoGP paddock and twenty years wait in MotoGP itself. And he said after the race, he said, you know, we've come close so many times. And he said, I thought it was never going to happen. So to finally win must have been incredible and he said he always looked across at uh, Lucio Cecchinello who's effectively his opposite number with Honda Lucio Cecchinello racing of course the private satellite Honda team uh, as as well and you know Hervé Poncheral said he said I always used to look at Lucio Cecchinello when he was winning with Cal Crutchlow and thinking he doesn't know how lucky he is because he's right it is so hard for satellite teams to win in MotoGP, it's 99% of the time it will be a official factory team who win, whether that be from Honda, Yamaha, Ducati, or otherwise. And of course, not only that, but uh, Hervé Pancheral has recently switched from you know his long-standing relationship with Yamaha to take a big risk on KTM. Now, at the time when he made that switch from Yamaha to KTM, KTM were not competitive at all, and in the early stages of that relationship things were not going well at all but he kept he kept strong and kept loyal and every posturals tech 3 team won their first ever race in the championship in austria in at a circuit owned by red bull who's their title sponsor so the the and of course ktm an austrian manufacturer as well so it was the perfect cinderella story and of course their rider miguel Oliveira is someone they've backed for a long time throughout the sport all the way through from 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 moto 3 ktm have had their eye on miguel Oliveira and brought him all the way through to so to see them all win together was was incredibly uh incredibly heartwarming particularly after the the harrowing crash and the following uh, the, the week previously so heading into the second part of the season uh in moto gp it's impossible to call who which manufacturer is going to come out on top which riders can I come out on top? Is it going to be Quattraro? Is it going to be Davizioso? Is it going to be Jack Miller, who's third in the championship? You know, he's had two podiums this year. Um, it's impossible to tell. And 
that well we know that how exciting MotoGP is anyway but to see this incredible variety and I'm sure we will see Mark Marquez before the end of the season and when he comes back expect fireworks there as well but I think he's going to come back to a very different championship to the one he left there's a lot of people that have gained a lot of confidence in Mark Marquez's time away from the sport realizing that they can win as well and that inner confidence is critical as well so check it out get yourself onto the MotoGP.com video pass you can watch it all over the world you can subscribe to that or uh, in most countries there will be a TV deal of some sort and if you've never watched MotoGP racing before well I cannot urge you enough to to go and check it out thanks so much for listening to this episode this big roundup of the MotoGP season so far i hope you've enjoyed it love to hear your thoughts you can get in touch with me via my social media which is uh, facebook which is peter mckay uh twitter which is at mckay podcast and also you can uh, you can comment in the uh, in in your chosen podcast provider as well on that topic don't forget to uh, click the subscribe button on your chosen podcast provider so you will never miss an episode of the Peter Mackay Motorsport podcast and i can say that we've got some very exciting interviews coming up uh, one particular Le Mans winner uh, coming to join us on the podcast soon and uh, i can't wait to uh, to show you that as well Thank you so much for listening and we'll speak to you next time on the Peter Mackay Motorsport Podcast.